Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Scott Schaefer. I'm Senior Editor for Politics and Government at KQED Public Media right here in Northern California, and I will be moderating today's program. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all of our programs possible. We're grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these very uncertain times. Today, I'm joined by U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. He joins us from Washington. He's the author of the recent book, Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Senator Brown has represented Ohio uh, since his election in 2006, when he defeated incumbent Republican Mike DeWine. Today, he's one of the most powerful and progressive voices in the U.S. Senate, his broad coalition of support, uh, being a populist advocate for blue-collar workers, unions, uh, as well as the middle class, has helped him to defy the state's conservative lean and win re-election twice, most recently in 2018. Now, Desk 88 tells the story of his mahogany desk uh, that sits on the Senate floor, uh, it highlights the work of the people who sat there before him, from Hugo Black, who helped lift millions of American workers out of poverty, to Robert F. Kennedy, who became an advocate for the poor uh, after an eye-opening trip to the Mississippi Delta in the 1960s. Uh, in light of the rise of progressive policies in the Democratic Party today, Senator Brown highlights how politicians and the public have successfully fought against entrenched special interests and advance the cause of economic and racial fairness. Very much an issue that is in the news and in this campaign as well. We'll be discussing a lot of that in the next hour. And of course, we want to hear from you. We want to uh, see and hear your questions. If you're uh, watching along with us, please put your questions into the text chat on YouTube or in the comments uh, section of Facebook, and we'll be getting to those later in the program. And Thank you very much, Senator Brown, for joining us today from D.C. Thanks. It's, it's, it really is an honor to be in front of the Commonwealth Club. I wish we could do this in person for a whole lot of reasons. And I'm so sorry about what's happening in your state. I just I mean, we all see the footage of it. It's just hard to imagine something like that. So I'm so sorry. Well, thank you for that. Uh, fortunately, the skies are a bit clearer today, so we're grateful for that. I want to ask you about a phrase that you often talk about and which you often also use in the book, which is the dignity of work. Uh, what does that mean to you? And, and how do you see that playing out, especially in this pandemic? Well, the, the term, the dignity of work, is is not mine originally. I probably use it more than uh, any anybody else in, in elective office. But it's um, it originally was the first time I came across the phrase. I'm not Roman Catholic, but was Pope Leo the Thirteenth. He was called the Labor Pope, and Dr. King uh, popularized the term dignity of work, and I. I mean, to me, it's it's that uh, King, King, as we know, King um, brought together the civil rights movement and the labor movement, uh, and he really did see the conflation of the two of them. Uh, and as we know, Dr. King was assassinated when he was standing up for one of the most oppressed groups of workers in the country, uh, Memphis sanitation workers, who were um, either overwhelmingly or all African American. I don't know that we know that um, they two of them had just been killed on the job. Uh, they were grossly underpaid. They were mistreated at work. And Dr. King thought uh, that civil rights, labor rights are civil rights and civil rights are labor rights. And uh, to me, I, I, I always define the dignity of work as all workers, whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge, whether you work for tips or work on a salary, whether you're caring for aging parents or raising children. Uh, and it's important that it's all workers. And this is particularly comes to mind now with how we define essential workers, the people we don't notice unless the job's not done. Essential workers are, are more women than men, more likely um, they're, they're, they're um, disproportionately people of color and they're 
generally inadequately paid for the work they do. And um, it's what drives me every day in this job to advocate for, for, for workers and especially those workers. You know, the 2016 election, many people feel that it was that kind of worker, the middle class, the, uh, you know, uh, lunch bucket Democrats, uh, many of whom went uh, either didn't vote at all or who voted for Donald Trump. Do you feel like the party learned a lesson from that election and, you know, is putting those lessons into place in this campaign? Yeah, I think that Biden is is well suited to to carry that in Ohio. Ohio was uh, Trump won Ohio by eight points, surprising, frankly, me and about everybody I knew. Uh, he won the other three Great Lakes industrial Midwestern states. Define them how you want. Don't use the term Rust Belt, but define them how you want. Um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, he won those each by one. So those have become the three targeted states. And if 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 Biden wins Ohio, it will be an electoral college landslide. And he absolutely can win Ohio. But Trump came to particularly working class Ohioans continuing, you know, the, I mean, Trump is appeals to the far right in many, many ways, but he appealed to working class Ohioans with a phony populism that he never meant, um, that he's never been on the side of workers when there's a fork in the road and he sides with workers or he has a chance to side with workers or corporate interests. It's always large corporate interests. And uh, you can see whether he took the $600 a, a week away from the unemployed workers. There are 800,000 of them in my, 600,000, I'm sorry, 680,000 in my state. There are millions in California that lost their unemployment insurance like that. And what are they do to, what, what are they to do to get on with their lives? And Trump is, is um, and every time he has betrayed workers and the race in Ohio will go down to uh, the one candidate that, that, that governs, will govern through the eyes of workers. I would argue Biden is the most pro-worker candidate either party's nominated. And I wasn't initially for Biden. I wasn't involved in the primary either way, but he is, I think, the most pro-worker candidate either party's put up for, um, for president in a generation. You know, there's this feeling, of course, that uh, people on the coasts and Biden's in Delaware, but I don't think Delaware counts as much as New York, New Jersey, California, in terms of this attitude of, you know, looking down at people in those what they call flyover states, which is a very, you know, derogatory, condescending phrase in itself. I mean, do you feel I mean, obviously, Joe Biden doesn't reflect that. But, you know, is that a lesson that the party needs to still absorb if it's going to, you know, win back the Senate. I mean, it's a little late now because the, a lot, in a lot of ways, the cake is already baked. But you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I that was really good insight. I, if you watch the Republican convention, and it's kind of my job to do that, um, among other things. I, uh, one of the things I heard repeatedly were people saying, "I'm so and so from Iowa, from flyover country," and there is a. Uh, there is a resentment from the middle of America um, toward, uh, the, 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 there, there was a resentment towards people on the coast, especially to the national government and to Wall Street. Uh, uh, less so to Hollywood a little bit, less so to the Silicon Valley, perhaps a little bit. But um, that, that, that I, I think that, I mean, when I hear the Donald Trumps of the world or Wall Street, Republican Wall Street financiers or, or um, major business leaders, um, Republicans talk about, um, you know, the elite and we've got to stand against the elite. It's a, it's a little bit trouble because the Repu clearly Republicans have thrown their thrown their all of themselves into helping the elite. However, we define them helping the people that have much. But the, the middle of the country, the perception among many in the middle of the country is they've been forgotten. My my wife just um, my wife's a Pulitzer Prize winner originally from the Plain Dealer and teaches at Kent State University, teaches journalism and just came out with her first novel called The Daughters of Erie Town. It's about four generations of working class family and uh, not a white family, but a lot of interactions in the black community, too, but in in the middle of America on Lake Erie and. Um, it's it's an interesting. I mean, it, it's it's interesting how the country may see us. I mean, I don't feel inferior, but I think a lot of people think that people on the coast look down on us. I I don't know that I believe that, but I also think that Democrats don't stand for workers as much as we should. Republicans don't, for sure, in their policies and their actions. But Democrats need to talk more about the dignity of work and make the contrast between us and. In Trump's but Trump's everyday betrayal of workers. And even you, as you point out in the book, briefly in passing, I think that uh, you know maybe Democrats should talk more about religion, which is important to people, you know, all over the country, but certainly in the Midwest. Yeah, I, although I, I yeah I, I I've touched on that. I 
I don't have any real advice there. I, I don't talk a lot, about, a lot about my faith. I, I, one of my favorite Bible passages, I grew up as a Lutheran and is, um, is Matthew 25, which we all know is, I mean, when Christian or non-Christian generally knows when, when I was sick, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. And I never liked that because Jesus, no, Jesus, Maimonides, Muhammad, Buddha, none of them would have said the least of these. That's some translator of centuries ago. And I saw a different Bible called the Poverty and Justice Bible. And it's like, it goes like this. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. What you did for those who seem less important, you did for me. And that's a very big difference, what you did for the least of these. And people say that not in a necessarily looking down sort of way, but but um, there is a there should be an egalitarianism there that, that we should practice better than we all do. Well, let's talk about your book. Uh, it's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. And uh, tell, in the book, you, you describe how it is you came to be sitting in that desk and, and just describe what that process is like. You were a freshman senator in 2007 or maybe it was late 2006. I'm not exactly sure when you get sworn in, but you were in that freshman class. Um, so what do they say? Go, you know. Ready, set, go. Find a desk. I mean, how does it work? well? A little bit, yeah. Um, every everything at the beginning, as you might suspect, Scott, is uh, at the beginning of a Senate term of a senator's career, uh, long or short career, is done. At least the beginning is suggested by seniority. So you choose your committees. You don't get your first pick often because you're not very senior. You get a you get a couple picks you like, and maybe the most important committees you don't get on right away. You pick your office in the Hart or Russell or Dirksen Building by seniority. And you pick your desk by seniority. And so by the time it gets to 10 freshmen, there's there are 10 of everything left, right? So I, I had heard that senators um that senators carved their names in their desk drawers. I had heard that from somebody on who told me. So I walked around to the 10 desks left and I started looking in drawers and pushing legislation or junk or whatever papers aside. And I um I saw carvings of the names. I saw Hugo Black of Alabama, George McGovern of South Dakota, uh, Al Gore Sr. of Tennessee, and then it just said Kennedy. No first name, no state. So I walked over. I said, Ted, come here a second. Ted Kennedy was, uh, it was 2007, so he was still alive. And he walks over and I said, which brother's desk is this? And he looked at me and said, said well, it's got to be Bobby's because I have Jack's. Like he would get to choose before I would. So I thought, I want this desk. So my, my wife was... Um, understands we both really believe that when you have a new job, you should learn about this a little bit about the history of that job, who came before you, what they did. You'll just do your job better. So um, Connie bought me a whole bunch of books that Christmas and went on, you know, or a lot of old books, new books, whatever, mostly older books written about some of the people that had my desk and written about the Senate and some of the Ohioans that, that were in the Senate. And as I started reading them, I thought, you know, I could, I could write about some of these. And I, I chose, so the desk number was 88. That's the number that they, they're all numbered by the Senate haphazardly. I don't know how that happened exactly. And I chose eight senators because it just seemed like a manageable number. And I, I started working on the book 10 years ago. Uh, and I thought it was done about five years ago, and I showed it to my wife to read. She had talked to me. She's a very, very good writer, as I said, a Pulitzer winner. And, and um, about five years ago, she looked at it and she said, good start, but you're only about half done, which was not a good week for our marriage. Um, but she was right, because I had written about these eight senators, but I hadn't. She said, you need more of you and your thoughts and your analysis and your emotion and all that. So I went back and wrote um, essays about each of the eight senators from sort of my viewpoint as a as a you know early early mid whatever twentieth century senator. You know a lot a lot of senators, uh, especially those who have aspirations to run for president or vice president, I guess, will write a memoir. Um, and uh, this is not a memoir. I mean, it certainly, as you say, it has a lot of you in it, uh, but it's not a memoir. It's uh, it's a book about the history of a piece of furniture and obviously more than that. But I mean, I'm saying, why, why did you, did anyone say to you, you know, Sherrod, you really ought to write about, you know, what about you, right? Write a memoir. Well, first of all, um, not to be disrespectful to any of my colleagues, but often senators that write memoirs don't really write the memoirs, as you know, Scott. Um, my, my wife, and I will not attach a name to this, my wife, who was on good terms with a number of my colleagues, was talking to one of my colleagues who was complaining that his book was not reviewed by the right people, the New York Times or whatever. 
And Connie looked at him and said, think how bad you'd feel if you had actually written it. So um, there is that. But no, I, I would never put anything out that I didn't write, any, any major piece out that I didn't write. But um, it took 10 years to do it. And I, I don't know. I just started thinking, you know, these, these senators, there's a, there are some common threads running through them. All of them were uneven in their public service. We all are in life. Um, and I think I can teach people something, not just about the Senate or even about the progressive movement, but I think this, this book in some ways is a template on how progressives, um, how progressive, it's a, it's a description of how progressives change the country in a really positive way. And it's also a bit of a handbook for how we change the country in the future. And, um, the, the book came out in November, the time, the, the, the time, the timing of the paperback was, was yesterday, which is, is kind of perfect, maybe fortuitously, because it really does speak to me and, and to my colleagues about how we can prepare for a new progressive era starting in January. Well, as you say, these senators did go on to make contributions to the progressive movement, but they didn't all start out that way. And one of them um, was, as you mentioned, Hugo Black from Alabama, who served from 1927 to 1937, later put on the Supreme Court by FDR. But he started out as a, and not even that young a man, I think he was 37, you say in the book, when he joined the KKK, um, which of course was an, not just anti-Black, anti-Jew, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant. Um, so how did he make that transition? Well, I, I, he made that, he, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a little hard to explain that Eight, I'm writing a book as a progressive about eight progressive senators, and I would point out all white men, um, those were the people that held my desk, those were the people that sat in the Senate, as you know, until more recently, and your state has elected women to the Senate every election since 1992. But Black, um, how do you include somebody like that? Well, his, his exploit, he, he, he um, immediately left the Klan after, soon after his election, but he didn't really leave that philosophy right away. But he, he came to, he would, would say, I would have done anything to get votes. There were two groups in his mind of Alabama voters in 1926. There were the big mules. He called them the big mules, M-U-L-E-S. They were the, the um, steel companies, the railroads, the mining companies, the power companies. And then there was everybody else. And the Klan had a huge foothold in Alabama politics, understanding, of course, that, that only white people were voting, essentially. Um, he renounced the Klan fairly soon afterwards. Um, but he said, I would have done anything to get a vote. Affiliation with the Klan. Excuse me, does affiliation help him get elected? Yeah, oh, yeah. I think it undoubtedly did. And I think he thought it did. And he said, I would have done anything that helped, helped me get elected. Then, but not till his second term did he show any any progressive uh, tendencies or greatness. He he was he is responsible with with Wagner of the Wagner Act, all the labor law of in many ways creating the middle class in this country because of the labor movement. He's the he um, he sponsored the bill on the minimum wage and eight hour workday and collective bargaining with Wagner, and did hearings and and build a real career out of. Being some some called him the most radical member of the Senate, the most radical progressive member of the Senate, um, and, and, but he on race he really never got that much better until he got on the court. And by the time he was on the court in the third late thirties, Roosevelt's first choice, first um, first nominee, um, by the fifties he helped to write the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision, the integrating schools decision. And he, um, he was burned in effigy at his own, at his Alabama University of Alabama law school that year. Um, he was not invited back to a reunion and he wanted to go back, I think, and they burned him in effigy. So, um, he made quite a transition. Another that made a transition was Al Gore senior and Al Gore got more and more courageous. The older he got, um, he was, um, he voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964 to his son, the future vice president, to his son's chagrin and his daughter's chagrin. The next year, he, he was reelected that year to his third term. Then he turned against the Vietnam War, against the president of his own party. He um, took on corporate, a lot of corporate interests by a, a really progressive tax, tax um, uh, advocacy. And then he took on Nixon on two Supreme Court justices, Hainsworth and Carswell, knowing he could lose. And Nixon came after him in 1970 with the Southern strategy and beat him. So you can see, Senator, you can see some of these people get more courageous as they get older. 
Well, and I, you also write about how he rebuffed uh, Strom Thurmond, who was a you know segregationist Dixiecrat, uh, who kind of buttonholed him to try to get him to sign the Declaration of Southern Principles, known as the Southern Manifesto. Uh, and he said, hell no, uh, quite loud, I think, so other people could hear him. Uh, did he ever pay a price for that? And his son sort of, sort of did in a way, but, uh, you know, did he personally? Uh, well, I think he paid the price a dozen years later, 13 years later, maybe in 1970. But um, And he had a primary from a pretty right-wing guy in 58, if I remember. Um, but, yeah, he stood up to Strom Thurmond when only three Southerners did. Um, Thurmond, uh, Lyndon Johnson who got a pass from the chief segregationist in the Senate, Richard Russell, I would regretfully add whose name after who's who, after who the Senate office building is named, the Russell building, uh, who was the most, if not the most virulent and nasty and uh, was the most effective segregationist in the Senate. Uh, and then um, he, uh, uh, and then Johnson, Johnson voted no, can, but Russell gave him a pass because he wanted Johnson to run for president someday. And then the other two were from Tennessee, Kefauver and, and um, Gore. So he showed courage there. So he had, and he, and he was a strong, pretty strong labor advocate in a state that was pretty anti-labor. So he had his moments of courage, a number of them, but the last term of his career was sort of all about taking a stand. And he, he thought about running for president, um, like all senators, I, <laughs> I would say every one of us looks around and sees all these people are running for president. I'm as good as they are. So there, there's there's always that in the Senate. <laughs> well, there's, isn't there an old saying that every senator wakes up in the morning and sees a future president when they look in the mirror? Yeah, the, the, yeah there's that one. And the other one is there was a secret ballot in the U.S. Senate who should be the next president. It was a hundred-way tie for first. So it kind of goes both ways, right? Well, you know, it did get me thinking um, – I mean, I'm quite sure when you think about this, these uh, Supreme Court nominee battles we've had in the past 30 years now uh, or longer, uh, you know, could a former Klansman possibly be confirmed by the U.S. Senate for the Supreme Court? No, I think not. No, no. I mean, I, Black, Black, um, and Black was, uh, well, the it, Black was not universally loved either in the Senate. I mean, he was... Um, but I, I think the answer to that is a pretty decided no, and it should be that way. I mean, there's just, there's no excuses. It, it also made me think, you know, there was that moment in the debates, classic, probably one of the most memorable moments in all the Democratic debates where Kamala Harris uh, challenged Joe Biden. And she alluded to comments he had made about fondly working with people like Strom Thurmond and other very conservative, sometimes anti-Black, racist Southerners. And, you know, Kamala Harris said she was offended by that. I mean, how do you think about that? You know, that kind of willingness, ability, or necessity even of reaching across the aisle to work with people who you really may have not, very, very little in common with or even revile some of their very personal... Especially when it's race. Because I, I mean, there are, there, are, um, there are a number of, I'm sure, racists in the U.S. Senate. We have one in the White House, to be sure. Um, you know, they, but they don't, they don't engage in hate speech now, but I, I'll, I'll illustrate an answer with one story. And then I, I struggle with this because it's always, I mean, I need to get things done for people in my state and in this country and I'll work with damn near anybody. Um, I don't have to have dinner with them. I don't have to like them. I don't have to, um, you know, get to know them intimately, but uh, there's a, there's a Senator from Missouri named Roy Blunt, who's kind of a friend of mine. And he, um, very conservative. He and I were secretaries of state of our states at the same time. And, he said to somebody once, said, you know, Sheryl Brown and I have known each other 30 years and we've agreed exactly five times. And then he laughs and he said, and all five of those are federal law. So it's important. It's important, you know, whether it's Ted Cruz or Ron Rand Paul or somebody that I don't um, necessarily love, um, that if it's something that I think advances something that I care about, that's an important issue that you work with them. Um, dropping their names is is in a favorable way. I, I mean, the, the, but 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 Biden Biden was in the Senate at a time when there were still segregationists there, and they were unfortunately in his and my party. Um, There's you know, and I mean, there, there I, I suppose there were Republicans that were just as heinous as Eastland and and Thurmond, um, and Thurmond became a Republican as we know. But um, those are those are hard moral questions to think about and to decide. But my duty is to work, to, to, to advance 
what's best for my state and um, and to always call out people that are racist or uh, or you know anti-Semitic. Willie Brown, who I'm sure you know, uh, the former Ayatollah of the Assembly, as they used to call him, the Speaker and former Mayor. Uh, has said you you shouldn't have any permanent enemies in politics. You know, you if there's something you can work on, if you can be allied on something, you should take that opportunity to do that. And it it, it seems like we've gotten away from uh, from that idea. You know, that it's it's sort of the the cancel culture uh, thing. Yeah, on the on the big issues. I mean, the, the other senator from Ohio's name's Rob Portman. He's very conservative. Um, he um, he and I disagree on every major issue, but we find ways to advance the interests of the state together on Lake Erie or uh, the, the Great Lakes issue or something or opioid addiction. Um, but um, the Senate the Senate is just as divided as the country is. Uh, we we don't scream at each other. We don't yell at each other much. We we you know we work with each other when we need to and most of the time, but. Um, the country's just in a very divided place now, and the political parties are more homogeneous than they used to be. I mean, go back to Biden's beginning in the Senate. There were liberal Republicans. There was Judge Chafee of Rhode Island. There was an African-American, Ed Brooke, um, from from Massachusetts. There was Pearson of Kansas and Kay, Ian Javits. And then there were very, very conservative Democrats when he came, like Eastland. So um, the parties have become more homogeneous in their ideologies. Uh, Republicans still a bunch of white men. There are very few people. There's nobody. There's one guy of color. There's a couple Latinos. I should have said one African-American. And there are a few women. The Democrats are about a third women and will increase after this election, I assume. Uh, And uh, the Democrats look more like America. But still, you see uh, too often in the Capitol, you see that it looks pretty white during the day. Uh, and at night, when the cleaning people come in, it's more black and brown. And there still aren't enough staff people of color. There still aren't enough regular the the, the banking. Well, I do work on banking, housing issues because I'm senior Democrat on the, on the committee. Uh, the regulators, even the Democratic regulators, but the Trump regulators are all basically rich white guys um, that are doing public service in a curious, in my mind, curious sort of way. Well, and in some of these rich white guys you write about in your book, like Robert Kennedy, you know, they came from privilege, uh, but really, and in Kennedy's case in particular, I think came to really deeply feel, uh, what poor people in Appalachia and inner cities and farm workers were going through. And that was so evident. And you write about that in the book, um, and yet he was also very flawed as well. I mean, he was very close to Joe McCarthy and he was buddies with Roy Cohen. I mean, how do you, I mean, people are complicated, right? Whether they're in the U.S. Senate or not. But how, how do you think about all those different aspects of somebody like Bobby Kennedy? I was, um, I was doing a, a call last night with um, the Kennedy Library. And um, they obviously ask a good bit about Bobby. And the, all, all three Kennedy brothers, I, I would argue that, I, well, all three Kennedy brothers were not, they, none, of, none was an especially admirable, classy, um, empathetic elected official in the first parts of their career. I would argue Teddy Kennedy, um, his last 20 years in the Senate, his first 20 years, he was an okay senator. His last 20 years, probably the best senator, I would argue, the best senator in U.S. history. Uh, Jack Kennedy was never considered much of a senator. And then he gets elected president. Bobby's first few years, he worked for McCarthy. He ran his brother's campaign. He was a technician and not an easy guy to deal with. And then he had a series of uh, Marion Wright Edelman, the woman that founded um, the Children's Defense Fund. Uh, she was saw Bobby in Mississippi, didn't much care for the Kennedy family because of Jack's nominees for judges, all having to go through Eastland, the segregation judiciary chairman. And she um, saw Bobby's empathy come out in the Mississippi Delta. You had mentioned that at the beginning. And, and Bobby had an uncommon empathy, but he didn't really show it. Maybe he didn't discover it. I don't know. He didn't show it until the last five years of his life when he became the most fierce advocate for people without a voice, farm workers in, in, your, in your state, um, many of them in the southern part of your state, um, uh, African-Americans in the Delta, Mississippi Delta and in inner city Cleveland and and Appalachian whites that were all all lacked a voice and all lacked much lacked opportunity. 
I'm going to weave in some of the questions we're getting from viewers. And uh, somebody wrote, what's the most surprising thing you learned about Robert F. Kennedy while writing this? Uh, how, how, what a loner he was, I think. I, I guess I didn't know that. Um, I really enjoyed it. The, 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 the research for this book was, I probably, in the, bio, in the bibliography, I just list all the books I, I, I researched. I read probably 150 books in total. And in full, and then looked at a lot of other stuff. And Kennedy, um, Kennedy, Kennedy was uh, was sort of a humble kind of quiet guy that um, wasn't particularly sociable uh, or social. I guess is maybe both until a little later in life. And he, um, I don't know, I don't know what really surprised me because we'd all heard so much about Kennedy. But I, 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 all, I kind of idolized. I graduated high school in 1970, and. So I was a freshman, sophomore when he was killed. And I always really liked, I, I really went through a period of really liking Bobby Kennedy, but not really knowing a lot about him until the book. And, um, but I, I think his, I mean, his, his empathy really was uncommon. I guess I'd say that's the biggest surprise. He had empathy beyond what almost any human being I know had. But again, it, it seemed to come late in life. You tell a great story in the book. Uh, he and Lyndon Johnson, of course, never liked each other. Uh, and, and Johnson always was worried that uh, Bobby would challenge him in 1968. Johnson ultimately drops out. Three weeks later, Bobby Kennedy goes to the White House to talk to him, to talk to Johnson. And they go into, I think it was the cabinet room. And uh, Johnson, as he often did, you know, secretly started the recording of the conversation wanted, and then afterwards wanted it transcribed. And, and what happened? Yeah, Bobby, um, Bobby goes to the White House. And this story came to me from a guy that worked at the White House in the last year of the Johnson administration. I was in a, in a restaurant in Austin, Texas, and I told him I had Bobby Kennedy's desk. I hadn't really done much writing at that point. He tells me this story that, that Bobby, um, Bobby went to see LBJ about, about not running against him, about, about not telling him he was going to run for president. And, and I don't remember the timing exactly. And Johnson and Kennedy couldn't stand each other, as you point out. And Johnson had a Johnson under his, they sat in the cabinet room across Bobby sat across from where the president sits. Uh, the, the chair, the president's chair is a slightly higher than all the other chairs. And Bobby sat in the other, Bobby clearly been in that room before. And Johnson hits a little button under the table to record the conversation. Only Johnson and Bobby were in the room. My friend, Larry Temple was out of the room at the time. And um, the conversation went on about 15 minutes and, and Johnson and Kennedy walk out and Temple, Temple walks Bobby outside goes back in, Sala Gomez president, he said, give me the tape. So Bobby had told Johnson had taped it. And Temple came back, said, Mr. President, the tapes, it's all, it's all scrambled. It's not working. He said, try it again. It turns out that LB, that, that Bobby had worn into the meeting under his coat, some kind of a scrambling device. And I mean, there's an old saying, you sit down at a poker table, you don't see a sucker. It means you're it. You know, it ain't often when LBJ was the sucker, but Kennedy, Kennedy outsmarted him because apparently Kennedy knew about taping in the White House. Brother did it too, I think. Um, why do you think he did that? I mean, other than to kind of mess with Johnson. <laughs> oh, I think just to mess with Johnson. I, I think he just probably, I bet he went back. I mean, I, I've never, it's interesting. I have all the reading, maybe somebody wrote about it. Because I said to Temple, when he told me that story, I said, is that, is that in print anywhere? He said, I don't, I've never seen it. And I can't believe I'm the only guy he told that. But so I, I would assume Bobby went back to his office and said, I'm sure LBJ is going crazy now because he, he thought he had me on tape, but he doesn't. I think a lot of, uh, you know, history buffs uh, wonder about that 1968 election. It was such a fork in the road for the country. And of course, Bobby Kennedy was here in June of 68, wins the California primary and is assassinated in Los Angeles that night. I mean, do you ever think or, do you know, when you're out with your buddies in the Senate, you know, just talk about what how the country might be different? Well, uh, yeah, I, uh, well, how the country had been different if, if JFK had been assassinated, how the country would have been different if Johnson's insecurities hadn't kind of kept him in Vietnam or... Um, but Bobby's assassination, yeah, because a lot of um, I remember one point of the book I mentioned that um, Tip O'Neill said to um, uh, to McGovern, I think he said it directly to McGovern, um, because of you, there there are a hundred freshmen, there are hundred members of the of the, of the House Democrats. The numbers exaggerate, I'm sure, hundred House Democrats that are here because of you, George um, McGovern. Like I, I got in my first electoral politics foray of any any consequence was was with McGovern in 72 when I was in college. And we brought a whole lot of people in the system. So did Bobby. And I would guess if Bobby had won the primaries and been nominated, I mean, he was winning, 
if he had been nominated, he would have, win or lose, would have brought a huge number of young anti-war activists, environmentalists, civil rights activists into the, into the political electoral, electoral process like McGovern did. Um, so any, any sort of idealistic um, kind of uh, charismatic figure like the two of them, McGovern charismatic in a different way, I think brings a lot of new people in. And um, I remember being crushed on election night in 72. I had convinced my friends McGovern was going to win and he carried one state. So my, my political acumen wasn't particularly high in those days. I think, you know, maybe other than Bobby Kennedy, probably George McGovern is the best known of the eight senators. You know, depending on where you live, I suppose you may know Al Gore better. Al, Al. He, you know, as you say, he, he he was in many ways known for, you know, he was running for president during, you know, the break-in of the Democratic Party headquarters. He gets crushed by Nixon, kind of bungled the, uh, the nomination of his vice presidential nominee, Eagleton, who had to drop out. And, um, you know... Do you feel in any way that, you know, did, is the book a way of kind of really rounding out his reputation in a way that, you know, maybe reminding people there was a lot more to him than that crushing? Yeah, I, I wanted to do That's a really good insight. I wanted to do that because McGovern was the only one of the eight whom I ever met. And I got to know him in his, the last 10 years of his life. I, I um, or last how many years of his life, I, I went to dinner with him a few times. And, and um, he, you never kind of get over losing a presidential like that, especially to a guy like Nixon. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty hard thing to take. Um, but he, um, it's, it's interesting. He was seen as a guy in retrospect without many political skills, but he had great political skills to get to the House and get to the Senate. He ran in, a, in the most, South Dakota was quantifiably perhaps the most Republican conservative state in the country, Republican state in the country anyway. And he figured out how to win a race and then win a Senate race and uh, three times. But he bungled his presidential race, and I think it always ate away at him that he that he he said one day he was talking to me. He told he told me the story, although I've seen it in writing too. He was talking to Mondale. Okay, Mondale lost equally ignominiously, if that's the right word, in seven in nineteen eighty eighty four, and um, twelve years later, and McGovern was talking to Mondale. Mondale said, "Hey, um, George, how long does it take to get over this losing like this?" And McGovern said, "I'll let you know." Because I, I don't know that you ever do, because it's so one-sided, and, and you know your friends all know it. Don't keep it a secret, and and it's the pinnacle career. You're riding high. You think at the convention you're going to win, and then so I, I I would assume the pain is pretty great. And McGovern McGovern also had the death of a daughter, um, a tragic too young death of his daughter, and um, and like like Biden, he had a lot of pain in his life, and was a, McGovern was a really good man. But one other little McGovern story that tells me something about human nature. I was, um, the, the, the newest members of the Senate and the majority party tend to preside the fresh, the first, first, your first term, you tend, tend to be asked to preside over the Senate. And it's, I think it's really cool to get to do it, but some thought it was more of a chore. And I was sitting up there one day in maybe 19, maybe 2009. And the, when you sit up on the, and, and you, you sit as you preside, unlike in the house, and in front of you, there are four or five pages that are just waiting for instructions to run errands. And McGovern walked in the back, and I, this is in 2009, so he was long past his prime, his political prime. And I said, I said to the page, I said, you know who that is? And not one of them did. He said, what's his name? I said, George McGovern, and no sign of recognition. And it, there's, a, there's a Marcus Aurelius line that I will bungle and won't even try about how, um, how life is memories of people are so ephemeral and just a, just a good lesson to, to learn that, um, you know, we all, we all go back to dust. Right. And except Marks really wrote it way better than I just said it. That's why people still read meditations 2000 years later. Uh, you know, talking about that, how long, how hard it is to get over a loss when you run for president. Al Gore used to say, you win some, you lose some. And then there's that third category. Uh, which is he won the popular vote and kind of won, you know, many think he won Florida. Um, and, you know, we're, we're heading into this election where, you know, obviously Donald Trump lost by three million votes plus to Hillary Clinton and won anyway because of the Electoral College. Um, what do you how concerned are you about that? I mean, obviously, if it happens again, Trump would twice become president without winning the popular vote. I mean, do you see that as a potential crisis? Oh, yeah, I think it's just anti-democratic to its core. I mean, the, the Electoral College is there 
uh, for one reason, it was essentially a slavery compromise, compromise with slavery. I, I, I read fairly recently, I didn't know this. I, I'm surprised I, I didn't, maybe, most, I don't know if most people do or not, but Jefferson would not have been elected in 1800, would not have beaten the incumbent President John Adams without the extra electoral votes because of the three-fifths rule. So Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana and Mississippi, those states had more population that, that while only white people could vote and be citizens, black people counted three-fifths for purposes of redistricting, for purposes of electoral college and redistricting. So the South, 50 of our first 75 years, our country had Southern, Southern-born plantation owners. Um, 50 of the first 75 years our presidents were. Um, the South always had an inordinate amount of power. Um, I argue, although this, I, I didn't really write about this, but but um, some of the most progressive times in our country for Congress was was when the South seceded because Southern conservatives, Southern bourbons, as, um, as uh, Al Gore used to use that term about them, um, couldn't block progressive anti-labor, progressive pro-labor, pro-civil rights, pro-poor people, if you will, legislation. So um, we, we pay a price. The Electoral College uh, should be put to rest. We pay a price as a nation where... We, you know, we, we were, I mean, I'll, I'll add one other thing. In the elections of 2006, 8, 10, 12, 8, 16, and 18, all but 2014, more people voted for the Democrat for Senate around the country than the Republican. Yet the Republicans have controlled the Senate much of that time, control the White House, control the Supreme Court, even though they've been a minority. They finished second in most of these elections in the, in the aggregate number of votes. And if this becomes the third time, or the, I mean, there's no doubt that Biden's going to win the popular vote. This becomes the third time where the electoral college, pardon the, pardon the verb, trumps the popular vote. It's it's a problem for it's a problem for democratic governance, I think. Yeah, um, um, I wonder. I, I you know we don't know what's going to happen, of course, in November. But as you think about, let's suppose things go. You know, the, the Democrats do well. Biden's elected, win back control of the Senate. Maybe have a one, two, or three seat majority, House majority stays the same or grows. Like, what do you, what are the, there was a lot of criticism of Obama, you know, that he put all of his chips, too many of his chips on the Affordable Care Act and it cost him in the, in the midterms. And, um, you know, some thought he should have gone more for the, you know, doing something about the economy or immigration. I mean, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. but what, you know, what, what would be on your very short list of things to do in starting in January if the if the Democrats have the opportunity? Well, the first thing we pass is the John Lewis um, voting rights bill. Uh, we 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 do a number of things. We um, but not too many. We we expand democracy by the voting rights bill by uh, some some rules about redistricting, um, campaign finance. Um, things that make this, that they really do expand democracy in the country. And there are a lot of other options. And I, I don't have strong opinions on which one, but a number of them. The other things we have to do, I mean, there, there are three great moral issues of our times, I think, that, that voters under 40 certainly understand better than voters over 40. And that is um, income inequality, racial disparities, and, and climate change. And we've got to address Democrats. Well, when, when progressives win, this, this book really shows us, I think, LBJ, when, in Roosevelt's time, LBJ's time, and in Obama's time, progressives win. We, we do big things that last a long time with Roosevelt. It was Social Security. It was rural electrification. It was, um, it was labor law, collective bargaining, minimum wage, that kind of thing. When, FD, when Johnson won, it was civil rights and voting rights and Medicare and Medicaid and the Equal Opportunities Act and, and the Higher Ed Act and Pell Grants and all that. When Obama won, we did two really big things. We did the Affordable Care Act and we did Dodd-Frank, the Wall Street reform. The problem was, Scott, that by 2010 elections, nobody felt better about their lives. Nobody, none of the stuff we did, the two big things we did didn't have any impact on people's lives that first two years. So when we think about what we do as, as progressives in starting in January, if we win, as I think we're going to, we got to do things that people will feel within a year. Minimum wage. Voluntary Medicare buy-in, it's at 55 if people choose to. Um, fix the overtime rules so five, 5 million Americans will get a raise that work overtime that are making thirty-five or 40000 a year. The child tax credit, which would put two or $3,000 into families' pockets um, almost immediately. 
um, some, something with climate. I mean, we need to do things that people feel, not let's just do big things and people will benefit down the road, trust us. Because then in 2022, we lose and we just play defense as we play defense to hold the Affordable Care Act, um, Obamacare, and, and that, that doesn't work for our country. Um, some other audience questions. What do progressives in rural states have to offer the Democratic Party broadly? I think of you, Senator Brown, John Tester, Steve Bullock, who's running for the Senate. Uh, what, from Montana, what electoral lessons can we learn? Well, John Tester just um, wrote a book that came out yesterday, actually, about that. I've, I've talked to him about it. I've not read it yet. I, I, my wife ordered it yesterday. Um, I... Um, and Ohio, you wouldn't you wouldn't call Ohio a rural state. There are rural areas, and frankly, I lose most of those areas. Um, Tester has is a remarkable has remarkable political skills and has a connection with people. In Montana, Bullock seems to have the same connection, uh, and they are very close allies too, which will be helpful. Um, I, I think you talk about issues that matter to rural America. You talk about rural hospitals. You talk about the postal service. Uh, you talk about minimum wage matters there too in the overtime rule and the child tax credit and the, the issue that may be uniquely rural although it's somewhat inner city too is broadband that there are places in a state is 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 mostly urban as ohio let alone places in montana and places probably up near eureka california that that um that don't have broadband and that that you're you are automatically a disadvantage as a small business or as a student um, uh, because you don't have good internet connections. So that's one of the most important infrastructure. We've talked about a lot. We could do that. But I think you really, as, as, as Tester said to me, if you don't have a library or you don't have a hospital, you really cease to be a community in some ways. I, I'm very much paraphrasing it. But rural hospitals are really under, under great um, duress now. And uh, I don't see Republicans, because Republicans all oppose Medicaid expansion. In most of these states, and these southern states are getting hit so hard before the pandemic on health care, yet all these Republican politicians have, have tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act and repeal the Medicaid expansion. Yeah. One thing you haven't talked about, you mentioned climate change, but, you know, the Green New Deal, I don't know if you've endorsed that. Uh, Mary, uh, Nancy Pelosi calls it, I think, the Green New Dream. <laughs> she sort of said dismissive, dismissively a couple of years ago. You know, because she's very pragmatic, Nancy Pelosi, I think, you know, she's like, what can we get done? Not what do we, where do we want to be? I mean, she says, for example, she supports, supports Medicare for all, but we're not going to get there. So where can we go that's doable? I mean, how do you, how do you calculate those kinds of things? Well, first, I think Nancy Pelosi is the best legislator. Um, I think she rivals Johnson, but is a whole lot nicer person and a lot more idealistic. I, I just think she's the greatest. Um, and I, I the, the Green New Deal became sort of more symbolic than it, than what it is. Nobody really quite knows. Maybe we do now. But but I, I I thought a little bit about running. I mean, I thought for a couple months. I explored running for president in early 2019, and and I did not support the Green New Deal because I wasn't going to sign on to something that nobody could define. Um, I have a hundred percent rating from the from every environmental group out there. So there's no question about my interest in dealing with climate change and safe drinking water and clean air. I, I was hearing today, this is really an example of, of what we know, how what government knows how to do. I was talking to somebody in the southern part of your state today um, from L.A., and he said the air yesterday, I guess it's better today, as you said too, Scott, the air yesterday reminded him of L.A. in the 1990s. And we talked about that, and L.A. you know had terrible smog for decades in government, because of what government did, the air quality in Los Angeles got a whole, whole lot better. It's terrible now because of the fires, but it's the kind of progress we can make. So um, I, 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 the Green New Deal is fine. I mean, I, I aspire to that. I aspire to Medicare for everybody, but I, I want to get it done. And I introduced the bill with Ted Kennedy. I was in the House then on Medicare at 55. And a congressman from your area, uh, Pete Stark, was the other House sponsor. Um, to allow people to buy into Medicare at 55, it would have made a huge difference in people's lives. And we fell one vote short of getting it in the Senate when Senator Joe Lieberman uh, changed his vote and said it was a moral issue. And to me, it was probably a Hartford insurance issue, but who am I to judge? Well, I remember Ted Kennedy saying one of his big regrets is that he basically said no to Richard Nixon's health care reform, which really in many ways was more progressive than the ACA. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't know the details of the Nixon plan, but I have heard people say that. I know Ted Kennedy said that, that he wished, yeah. 
we're all smarter in retrospect. <laughs> uh, here's another question from uh, the audience. What is it like being the only Democratic statewide elected official in Ohio? Is it lonely or does it drive you to work harder to elect more people like you? Well, it's, it's, it's surely both. Um, we started something this year that um, I, we started last year um, because we lose most elections in Ohio. We have nobody statewide. Our congressional delegation is 12 to 4 Republican, even though we're a 55-45 state or better yet, really, for Democrats than 45. Um, and we started a program. I, I wear a lapel pin when I have a suit on. Um, that's a depiction of a canary in a birdcage. You all probably know the mine worker history of taking canary down to the mines. And canary died. You got out of the mines. You were on your own. You had no union strong enough or government that cared enough to support you. So I, it's sort of been my, um, I don't know, brand or something that I wear this little canary pen. Um, and it signifies to me the, the positive role of government. And that's really what Desk 88 is about. It's about the what runs through all of it is that the positive role that government can play in our lives. And um, so... Um, I, I just think that we is it, and I, I. So I started this program in Ohio where we we get it. We we endorse a lot of local candidates. We do all kinds of things to help them. Um, we raise money for them. I'm doing videos for them, doing all kinds of stuff. And I want to build a farm team, and I think that's going to help Biden win Ohio because there's there's so much action, so much. Um, there's some real synergism locally now in many parts of the state where new Democratic candidates, mostly women. And many people of color are engaged in, um, in, in their own elections and their allies, and we're going to see some good things happen. What do you make of, uh, I mean, as you say, uh, Ohio is you know, a pretty solidly Republican state statewide. Um, Mike DeWine, who you defeated uh, for the Senate, who's the governor, has really been, I think, very progressive, if that's the right word. He's been very encouraging people to wear masks. Uh, he also, I think, uh, John Kasich, who preceded him, I think, expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, uh, said that was the compassionate thing to do, the right thing to do. And then, of course, Kasich spoke at the Democratic Convention on behalf of Biden. What do you what do you make of that? Well, I make of the fact when you become governor, you you have to represent everybody to a degree. I mean, there are some governors that haven't for sure. But um, DeWine, who we're kind of friends now and we get along very well. Um, he and I ran against each other in 06, as, as you know, Scott, and he um, he did the first three months of this pandemic. I, I said very publicly what DeWine did saved saved Ohioans lives. What Trump did and didn't do um, killed more Americans. And DeWine, um, DeWine rarely talks about Trump. He really would rather not. He won't. He just stays away. But he's done a lot of the right things in this pandemic. He is um He's got a terrible legislature that's the most anti-choice pro-NRA legislature. I Maybe not the most in the country, but I can't imagine they could be any more extreme. A couple of leg- Republican legislators want to impeach DeWine because he won't join their anti-mask crusade and other kind of idiocies that the far right has fallen into. I The other day, watching that demonstration of people against masks was just bizarre. Watching that group in Nevada in that enclosed arena or whatever that was where they were at the Trump rally. And I, I talked to Catherine Cortez Master, their Nevada senior senator yesterday and just her today about that. And it's just, um, it's heartbreaking because you know more people in Nevada are going to get sick now. And they're, who knows where they go next? Some will go to California. Some will go to Ohio. Another question here from the audience. Uh, how do we get beyond the progress we can make to the progress that needs to get done I feel that pragmatism won't save us from the climate crisis and other issues we face. Well, I think there's a, yeah, I, I certainly see that, that um, I, 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 the, the chairman of the um, economics, I think he's still chairman of the economics department at Howard University um, was talking to a group of us the other day. He um, He's also the chief economist of the AFL-CIO now. And he, he was saying to do great, to do big things, you need consensus, not compromise. If you start com- if we if we take over and we think we've got to get Republican sign off on on every issue, we'll 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 never get anywhere because they're not going to sign off on anything bold that progressives care about. But we need to build the consensus, and it means that as we move on climate change, we continue to educate the country. You're still going to have Fox Television. You're still going to have 35 percent of the country, the Trump voters that. And the Trump acolytes that are that are simply not going to not going to um, believe facts. 
we're, we have a country like that now. We've always had a um, the, the, we've always had a, a strain of people in this country that that um, want to go backwards. I'll just leave it at that. But um, we've got to overcome them. There are enough people that want to, and I think we can. I think we can be bold, and I think boldness builds on boldness. Yeah. Um, in that regard, uh, you know, the Senate under the Republicans has been very effective at blocking both blocking uh, judges when Obama was president. Uh, most notably holding open that Scalia seat, refusing to give Merrick Garland a hearing. Um, and they've, in rapid fire, appointed, and uh, he's appointed Trump, and they've confirmed, I think, 200 federal judges. Um, how much hardball should Democrats play around judicial nominations? There's this arcane sort of tradition called the blue slip, which basically gives home state senators the right to block judges in their uh, appointed in their state to the federal courts. That has been suspended by Chuck Grassley, the chair of the Judiciary Committee. I mean, should should Democrats just do the same thing? Um, the last really hardball pitcher I remember for the Oakland A's was Catfish Hunter. Um, so I'd say play hardball like that. So you're for, what about the filibuster? I think we get rid of the filibuster. I, I think you can't. It goes back to democracy. I mean, you can... We Are we going to allow... A bunch of, I don't want to say small states because there's small states like Vermont and Delaware that elect people that agree more with me, but or you with whatever, but with progressives. But um, are we going to allow a minority of people to continue to block us doing things? I mean, for to get 41 senators, to give 41 senators when none of them are from California, New York, some of the biggest states in the country maybe Texas, but by and large, 41 senators, mostly from from least po- less populous states, to give them the power to override um, tens of millions of people in New York, California, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. No, I think at some point we want to run our country as a democracy. The Electoral College mitigates against that, the structure of the Senate. I mean, I'm not arguing for changing the Senate. We're, not, we're always going to have two senators per state. It's what we are. Although when, when, um, could you, you add a state? Well, you, we could, we could certainly do that. That's, that's a possibility if those states are eligible. And, a state. What's that? You support making DC? A um, state. I, um, I think so. I, I think DC, DC and Puerto Rico are, um, D, I think DC is larger than about five or six other states in population. So why shouldn't they be? Puerto Rico. What's, your hesitation? what's that? What's your hesitation? Um, I, I'm not. I'm not. I shouldn't have hesitated. I would. I would vote for that. I. I. My hesitation is: is that something that we are going to do in the begin in the first um, number of days? And my my thought is probably not. Um, I think the things we do at the beginning are um, uh, voting rights, and then things that tangibly that that affect people in a tangible way: minimum wage, overtime rule, Medicare at fifty five. Um, these aren't official Democratic Party positions, they're mine. Um, and uh, the, the, the child tax credit, things that will tangibly make people's lives better almost immediately. We do that because we should. We do that because then voters realize, oh, yeah, I voted for Joe Biden and my life got a little bit better. Another audience question um, with regard to voting rights. You served in the House with John Lewis for many years. What's your favorite memory of working with John Lewis? Well, my favorite memory is I was in the group of five members of Congress in 1997 that John invited to go to um, Selma and walk across the bridge with him. Um, I can't imagine anything uh, more exciting than that was. And then I went a couple more years and I took my daughters one year who were then um, eight and 10, maybe nine, nine and 11, a little older. And I took my mother one year. My mother was a like, like, um, Hugo Black, my mom, was a child of the segregated South. Uh, she always cared about civil rights. She married my dad. She met, she grew up in Mansfield, Georgia. My dad grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. And they met when my dad came from back from overseas at the Mayflower Hotel. And my mom um, always cared about civil rights. That's where I do so much. And my mom said something to me when I was a little kid. You remember the bus, all the busing controversy in the North, right? About school busing for segregation, for integration. And my mom said, you know, son, she said to me, she said, we had forced busing when I was growing up in the South. Uh, we had black children were bused in a decrepit old bus past the white school to the poorest part of town to go to the inferior black school. 
And that's what forced busing was in those days. And, and white Georgians didn't seem to mind that kind of busing. You talk about your parents in the book, uh, both being from towns called Mansfield in different states. Uh, your dad was a Republican, voted for uh, Barry Goldwater in 64, also voted for FDR a few times. I think every time he had the opportunity. No, voted FDR. against FDR. Oh, he voted against, against FDR. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. Thanks yes, for sir. pointing that out. But he did later, he did, be, maybe it was your mom's, you know, subtle kind of uh, persuasion. But, you know, how? what was your dinner table like uh, growing up, you know, when you talked about politics? Well, they weren't, they weren't very political. My mom, my dad, God said my dad voted in 64 for Goldwater and 72 for McGovern. And there were probably not 20 people in America that did that. His story about FDR, my dad in 1932 uh, went to Denison University, a small, really good liberal arts school in Ohio. And my dad was home for the weekend. He had just turned 21. And his parents took him to vote on the weekend to vote. You could vote at the Board of Elections ahead of time. And then he went back to college on Tuesday and his friends at the fraternity house were all going to vote. And he went and voted again. He voted for, for Herbert Hoover twice. I mean, really, the statute of limitations. That's what Trump's talking so, about. Yeah, that's right. It's guys like my dad. My dad, so Herbert Hoover got two votes out of my dad and he didn't get a whole lot more votes out of Ohio. But anyway, but they weren't really very political, but they, my mom talked a lot about justice and just fair play. I mean, my mom was was always thought that people should have a chance. And she had a, She had an uncommon, I mentioned Bobby Kennedy, my mom had an uncommon empathy. She was president of Ohio YWCA, um, which she would say, and I can't disagree, that next to the Urban League and the NACP were probably the longest, most, most um, effective proponent of civil rights and women's rights. And it mattered so much to her. She one time got to pick up Shirley Chisholm at the airport for a speech. She thought that was really cool. She heard Ron Dellum speak to the National YWs when he was a freshman congressman and just loved him. And so she taught me all that. When I interviewed Nancy Pelosi a couple of years ago, I asked her if she had any Republican children. Or any, I think I said, do you have any Republicans in your family? And she said, well, yes. In fact, my daughter uh, married a Republican. They're living in Texas. And at this point, it's just about the hearts and minds of the children. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have, do you have any, I don't know how old your kids are, but I mean, do you have, uh, I mean, you know, Susan Rice, the former UN ambassador, her son was a big Republican on the campus at Stanford, supported Trump. Anyone like that in your family? No, not, no. well, my, my mother's Georgia relatives, yes. The men, mostly Republicans, uh, the women, mostly Democrats, but in my immediate family, my brother's. My parents now, well, my parents are both passed away. My brothers, their wives, um, Connie's and my children, their spouses, uh, they're, they're all progressive. They, they all, they're all devoting their lives to, uh, to children or advocating for immigrants or elective office or all of that um, teaching. So, um, I, I mean, I'm proud of them no matter what they do for a living, but they're all, they're all pulling the same direction, which is nice. Just a couple of minutes left. I want to ask a couple more, two more questions. One, uh, you know, there's kind of this dinner party question of if you could have dinner uh, with anybody in history, uh, who would it be? And I'm just, since you've written about all these senators, yeah. is there, is there not somebody necessarily who you wrote about, but you know, when you think about either the Senate or the historical, you know, political figures in the country, who would you, who would you like, who would you, who would you have over for dinner? I'm kind of thinking about that. I, I I would say this. I probably wouldn't have answered it differently last week, would have differently last week. I read a piece in New York Times this Sunday about Maggie Kuhn and what an interesting life she had. She was always, she always cared about progressive causes, civil rights and women's rights. And then she was fired from the Presbyterian Church when she was 65. And she went out and changed the world in combating ageism. And she, she went to Cleveland to law to a school in Cleveland, Case Western Reserve. It was called, it's called now, um, where my sister-in-law teaches. It's, um, she, uh, she was worked for the YWCA. So I saw some things there, but I would think she'd be fascinating to talk to about a life of, of incredible service. And while she was doing all this activism, she was taking care of a, of a, of a, um, of a sick mother. And I believe a sibling that, that had a disability. So she was a remarkable woman. So last question, a lot of Americans, especially Democrats, are feeling a lot of uh, despair because of the pandemic, the economy, the political situation. Uh, do, any words of wisdom or inspiration to make people feel better? Well, yeah, out of the um, out of the darkest times. I mean, think of how people felt in 1930 
in 31 and Roosevelt came on the scene. And I, I really do believe, I mean, Biden has been more of an incrementalist as an elected official, um, as a moderate. But in, if, if we'd had this conversation a year ago and you had said Biden will be the nominee, I would have said he, he just thinks of himself wanting to take the country back to pre, pre-Trump normalcy. I don't think he looks at it that way. I don't think he's moved to the left as much as he realizes he's going to be a consequential president. He could be LBJ and he could be, I expect him to do big things on those three moral issues of our time on climate, on uh, income inequality, on racial, on structural racism. And I think he believes he wants to do something on those three things. He cares about them. He's going to have people around him that do. He's going to have a house and Senate that do, and he's going to have a country that's supportive of, of dealing those three issues. And that, that makes me, really hopeful that I I might not have felt six months ago. Less than 50 days. Our thanks to U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, uh, author of the book Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Thanks so much for joining us today. What a pleasure. Thanks for the good question, Scott. Thank you all at the Commonwealth Club. You bet. And there are copies of Desk 88, uh, which is now out on paperback. They're available everywhere books are sold. Make sure you grab one. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating in this live event. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please come to commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay well. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.